Welcome to Indie Film Weekly, a no film school podcast. I'm Liz Nord. I am Emily Booter. And I'm John Fusco. It's July 13th, 2017. And on this week's show, the TV that might change movie going forever, Red's Hype Machine, Russian meddling in movies, and as always, news you can use about new gear, upcoming deadlines, indie film releases, and Ask No Film School. Welcome to this week's show from downtown Brooklyn, New York, home of No Film School. As always, we're here to bring you everything you might have missed while you were busy making films. First of all, hi guys, I missed you last week. Happy birthday! Thank you. Thanks for holding down the fort and doing the show. It was very entertaining, I have to say. I really did listen and think about you on vacation every day. (laughs) Every minute. (laughs) Um, And I think we're going to follow up to that show with our first headline. So go for it, Emily. Yeah, so last week, John brought you a very well-researched story about declining. Don't oh, laugh. thank you. <laughs> Don't laugh at me. <laughs> no, your, your, your compliment was very nice. It was very well-researched. Yes, right. it was. Anyway, it was about declining big-budget box office grosses and how studios are basically lining up to blame Rotten Tomatoes, which I thought was, you know, not warranted at all, and we had that conversation last week. And this week, we thought we'd turn the attention around to indies, It's a uniquely strong summer for indie theatrical releases, and the box office certainly does seem to reflect that. For these purposes, we're defining indie films as those which were made for lower budgets and outside the studio system. And we can have a longer conversation about what constitutes indie film. That's another day. (laughs) (laughs) Or on our comments section every week. Yes, exactly. So first, let's take a look at the past week, since this is the height of the summer theatrical season, so it's a good kind of snapshot of what we have this summer. At the top of the chart is The Beguiled, which grossed $5 million last week, and next we have The Big Sick at $2.7 million, Beatrice at Dinner at $1.8 million, and The Hero at one point four, and finally, Megan Levy at 900000 I have to say, I have never heard of Megan Levy. Has anyone else? Who is she? Where does she hail from? I don't know. I've never heard of the hero either. Oh, that yeah, that's a, a, a political movie. Oh, po- and I that, think Megan Levy is like it. a war movie. Ah, yes, that's where the dollars go. But that's just this past week. If we look at the year cumulatively, we have Fox Searchlight's Gifted at twenty-four point six million. Focus features The Zookeeper's Wife at seventeen point four million, and It Comes at Night at thirteen point seven million to date. And I think you guys pointed out last week that Get Out has, you know, charted even with the <clears throat> the top blockbusters, and that's an indie. That's true. Yeah. And uh, they were also talking about how, you know, Baby Driver had a really strong opening. Um, and, again, I guess it comes down to what you call an indie feature because Baby Driver was made for Sony. Um, right. Well, was Baby Driver as good as everyone says it was? I liked it. Yeah, I had some problems with uh it's ending, and I mean, I really like Edgar Wright as a filmmaker, so he has a high bar to live up to for himself. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's really entertaining, and it's definitely, you know, we were talking about popcorn movies last week and how, you know, studios are mainly coming after Rotten Tomatoes because their popcorn movies aren't uh, getting reviewed well. And Baby Driver is a total popcorn movie, that's for sure. I don't know. I'm just opposed to, like, babies driving. It makes me really uncomfortable. Yeah, I'd rather have a self-driving car than a baby driver. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, listeners. (laughs) I don't think anyone has ever heard a baby driver pun yet. (laughs) (laughs) 
My next story is a little bit less optimistic, and that's because it hails from the land of optimism, Russia. And if you thought you were safe from a Russia-related news story on a film podcast, you were absolutely wrong. Because you are wrong. You are wrong. Actually, that's not a Russian accent, but, you know, we can pretend. The Russian government recently imposed dramatic increases to exhibition license fees, applying to all movies released in Russia theatrically. And when I say dramatic, I literally mean it. The previous fee was the equivalent of 69 U.S. dollars, which is really a nominal fee. But the new fee is not a ruble short of $88,000 at a minimum per movie. The fees increase as the movie grosses more at the box office. Wait, so it used to cost 69 bucks to show a movie theatrically in Russia, and now it costs 88000 Yes. That feels insane. How, how is that possible? Well, Russia is <laughs> a very big country with a lot of power. But it seems like most of those movie theaters would go out of business. It's for distributors. Okay. So if you're thinking what I'm thinking, this is really bad news for indies. Industry professionals in Russia have confirmed that sentiment. Natalia Sumina, marketing director at the major Russian movie theater chain Akaro, told The Hollywood Reporter that the measure is set to kill independent and foreign movies in Russia. Sumina believes that the consequences will be dire. Distributors may totally refuse to buy some movies for the Russian territories, and not just for a theatrical release, but also for online video services. So we're talking about a total... Shutout. Yeah, a total shutout for in, for movies that were not produced within Russia. Anastasia Sergeyeva, the executive director at Indian foreign Russian film distributor Volga, spelled it out even more clearly and with numbers. Quote, extra expenses for distributors of independent movies will increase by 1.62 million rubles, which is roughly... million a year, which corresponds to 63% of their total revenue. So we're cutting their revenue by more than half. As a result of this measure, 20 independent film distributors will exit the market, and about 300 titles a year won't get a Russian release. I hope this doesn't affect the release of the PP video, though. Okay, so ostensibly the State Department enacted this measure in order to encourage homegrown film production in Russia. And the state even claims it will funnel the exhibition fees directly into domestic film production funds. So note, the PP video will be fine because it was produced in Russia. Exactly. In Russia, by Russia. But we all know how money sort of magically disappears in the land of the Kremlin. And it's not difficult to surmise that this new law is indeed an act of censorship. When I spoke to one of Russia's most famous working filmmakers, Andrei Vyontsev, at Cannes this year, he told me that he had to venture outside the state funding system in order to make his most recent film, which he was at the festival with. And that was because his previous film, Leviathan, was partially state funded, and it caused a major political uproar, and the Russian government publicly denounced it for its portrayals of corruption and violence in the legal system. So if you're a Russian filmmaker, we want to hear from you. Please write to us at editors at nofilmschool.com and let us know what you think of the new regulations and how it might affect your work. Speaking of restrictions on movies, a quick update on a story we've been covering for over a year now. If you've seen some unusual banners or notifications on your favorite websites like Netflix and Amazon this week, they probably had to do with those companies' day of action to save net neutrality. Without going too deep into the details again, the inventor of the internet, Tim Berners-Lee, said that without net neutrality, we will not have the internet as we know it today. And that's because without it, internet service providers would have the opportunity to prioritize and control which content we have access to online. It's bad for creators and consumers alike, and 70% of Americans are against it, 
But despite that fact, our current administration is working full steam ahead to roll back regulations on the service providers and cable companies. So this week, content companies like the aforementioned Netflix and Amazon, along with more than 80,000 others, even Facebook, are protesting with banners and pop-ups to encourage users to reach out to the FCC or Congress in favor of the existing rules. If you're in the U.S., the FCC is collecting public comments until July 17th. So if you're interested in the fate of net neutrality, go ahead and make your voice heard. We have a post up this week about specific steps you can take, and there's more info and a petition that you can sign at battleforthenet.com. We also want to say a sad goodbye this week to a talented actor whose life and promising career were cut off way too soon. Nelson Ellis died last weekend from heart complications at age 39. You might remember him as the incredible, flamboyant, drug-addicted cook Lafayette on HBO's True Blood. He was always a scene-stealer on that show. But one of his most recent efforts was in an almost exact opposite role that really showcased his range. He starred in the quiet family drama Little Boxes as a writer and straight father in an interracial marriage to an academic. I interviewed one of that film's producers, Jared Ian Goldman, earlier in the summer when the movie hit theaters, and he really gushed about working with Nelson and what a, quote, rich and dynamic actor he was. Rest in peace, Nelson. We're sorry we didn't get to see more of you on screen. Rest in peace. So now, Charles, can you tell us a bit about uh, some of the gear news that came out this week? John, it would be my pleasure. So the big news of the week, obviously, is Red announcing a hologram machine. So Red does some things very, very, very well, and one of them is marketing and hype. So they announced that they would be announcing something really big on July 6th. Have your credit card ready. The cinematography internet was abuzz with rumors and theories. When it was released, it has turned out to be a holographic smartphone. Weird. Yeah, I mean, I guess that could be cool. I mean, we need to know a lot more. Like right now, there's just a render of the camera body. There's no holograms. There's no like indication of how it shoots holograms. There's no like Instagram integration so that you can like post your hollies to Insty. Uh, we need something. Even with the original Red One announcement, people didn't necessarily, people were like freaked out because they were like, oh my God, 4K video on CF cards for like a really reasonable price. But, like, we had context for, like, what 4K video meant. We all had shot HD. Like, it was a bunch of things we knew, but it was the combination of numbers that seemed crazy. With holograms, like, are we talking Leia or Tupac? Or, like, just a fancy version of the Nintendo 3DS screen? There's a lot of unknowns. Uh, They're probably going to have to try and, like, go really big in the consumer space and do a platform play. We're excited to see what they come out with. But, like, I personally wasn't tempted enough to put down $1,200 for a hologram box. No way. Uh, Next up was some news from Samsung, who now have a DCI-compliant LCD screen that can be built large enough to be a movie screen, which is nuts. Uh, Movie screens have been projectors since, like, the beginning of movies. And uh, projection is great with one big drawback, which is you've got to be in the dark for them to work. But, like, sitting together in the dark with a big audience is, like, part of the magic of cinema. The big news here isn't just that the sizes are getting larger with LCDs, because LCDs have been getting big for a bit. But it's that the accuracy is getting there. DCI is the Digital Cinema Initiative, and it's a set of performance specs dealing with how a display should properly look. 
a fully DCI-compliant wall from Samsung is a big deal, and it could possibly be the future of cinema, that someday we go to the movies and it's a giant LCD wall instead of a projector, and that's where we're seeing our images, and that will change a little bit how we tell stories, especially if they get much brighter and people start leaving the lights on. Uh, You could also get really, really fancy and set one of these up in your basement. Uh, Last bit of gear news this week is that the price came out for the Ronin 2. We first saw the Ronin 2 back at NAB in April. And uh, DJI, who is like the market leader in the drone market, has never really been the leader in handheld stabilizers. That belongs to Movi, who came out with like the original big news Movi five years ago. So DJI, because they're not the market leader in handheld, tends to be a little cheaper than Movi. So it was big news that they came out with the $7,500 price point for the Ronin 2, which is basically the same price as the Movi Pro. Usually, if you're not the big like market leader in a market, you got to be a little cheaper. However, the Ronin 2 is basically identical in price to the Movi Pro, and it can carry twice the weight with its 30-pound payload, whereas the Movi Pro only does 15 pounds. If you want to do 30 pounds in a Movi Pro, you're looking at the Movi Pro XL, which is like 20 grand. It's not just about the specs, though. I think DJI is also starting to feel like they've earned their good name and reputation, that their drone products are giving them like a real halo effect, and that they have such great quality that they don't need to dramatically undercut the competition to stay competitive. Uh, I think it's like DJI saying our stuff is as good, which it usually is. So we are looking forward to playing with the uh, Ronin 2 sometime soon. Great. Thanks, Charles. Uh, Let's move right on to Ask Now Film School. Ra Odom asks, can somebody give me some suggestion for on-camera monitor and director monitor on a 3K budget? So, first off, that's a great question. And maybe for the first time ever in Ask Snow Film School, I think your budget might be too high. Um, there are so many amazing directors, monitors, and on-camera monitors now. And like $3,000, even if you're getting two, like one for on-camera and one for director, is plenty. Coming in under $1,000, there are monitors from companies like Small HD, Landpart, Aperture, even Cinemartin out of Spain has a $200 monitor, although they seem to be having some customer service hiccups. We hear they're working it out, and that's $200, $300. Currently, for me, the best of the best, the one I'm amazed by, the one I actually personally bought, is the Small HD OLED 1702. It doesn't do HDR, so if you're looking for HDR, you need to look somewhere else. But here's the important thing. It's accurate. It's like accurate, accurate. I've probed it with my Klein, and it's totally accurate. This is huge because the biggest frustration with on-camera and director's monitors is how inaccurate they are. I know, and you know, it's just for framing and focus. But you're going to be on set with, like, a wardrobe person or a director or a DP or a client who doesn't understand that it's just for framing and focus. And you're going to have to explain to them, like, no, don't worry. I know that to I, the nurse's scrubs look pink and on the monitor they're purple. It's going to look pink. I know pinks are color. Or, like, if you're shooting Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, the colors of the outfits are very important. And when you have an on-camera monitor that looks off, that's a big deal. So... We've all lived in this world of constantly having to explain to non-filmmakers why it's not accurate. But with the 1702 OLED or OLED, it is accurate. It's the way of the future. It looks like it should, which is like a huge relief. 
You can also add a LUT into it on top of the calibration LUT that makes it accurate. That if, you know, your director wants like an insty heavy look, uh, you can sort of go with that. Now, it's around $1,700. So it's a huge jump in price over the competition. But I tell you, if your budget's 3000 get two of those. One for on camera, one for director. And yes, it's $400 over budget. But like the amount of acid you will save by not having to explain to people why the outfits don't look right is so worth it. Cool. Thanks, Charles. So as we mentioned at the top of the show, it's been a, such a strong summer for indies, and here are some that you can catch until our next show. Rachel Lambert's TIFF debut in the Radiant City is coming to VOD and Digital next Tuesday. I had been really eager to see this movie back in Toronto because Lambert is a protege of Jeff Nichols, who we are all fans of here at No Film School. And it's a very dramatic family drama about a man who testified against his brother in court when they were kids, and then he returns to their rural Kentucky hometown 20 years later to kind of face the fractured family that's left in the wake of, of all that tragedy. Uh, it features a really talented ensemble cast, including Michael Abbott Jr., Marin Ireland, Madison Beatty, and Celia Watson, who you might know from Modern Family. And I got to interview the entire cast of the film, plus Lambert and her co-writer Nathan Krigorski, for one of the most entertaining podcast discussions I've had. And that'll be coming out later this summer. And coming to Netflix on July 14th, Netflix acquired this documentary about the disappearing coral reefs of the world back at Sundance. It's called Chasing Coral, and there's an incredible amount of underwater photography in it. Oakley Anderson Moore sat down with the director Jeff Orlowski to discuss the effort it took to get these beautiful images. When bleaching accelerated last summer, Orlowski and his team began reef diving multiple times a day to manually capture the world's first visual evidence of the worst coral bleaching event in history. And you can read that interview at No Film School. We also have a podcast episode with the DP where he describes the process of shooting most of the underwater stuff on the Red Dragon. It's titled DP Roundtable from Brilliant Color to Black and White, Lensing a Sundance Award-Winning Film. And you can check that out on SoundCloud or whatever you're using to listen to podcasts. And... Also coming to Netflix on July 18th, you can check out Rogue One, A Star Wars Story, which is a pretty high-profile movie to be coming to Netflix. We discussed this movie at length on the podcast, mostly because we love Star Wars, but also because it has some indie roots. The movie is, of course, the first of a series of standalone Star Wars stories that acts as a direct prequel to Star Wars Episode Four: A New Hope. It follows Jin Erso as she leads a band of ragtag rebels to steal the plans for the Death Star, a machine her father helped to create. It's directed by Gareth Edwards, whose movie Monsters led to blockbuster after blockbuster. Lucasfilm took exception to a few things in the film and ended up bringing another director in to do some reshoots before the film went to release, and it's an eerily similar situation to what's currently going on with the Han Solo picture. I caught a really inspirational keynote Edwards gave back at South by Southwest, where he talked about how he forced his way into directing after getting a start as a VFX guy. It's quite a remarkable story, and I definitely recommend you read the highlights I transcribed in an article earlier this year. And coming out in theaters on Friday is City of Ghosts, Oscar-nominated documentarian Matthew Heineman's new movie. We put it on our summer's most anticipated indies list, and I'd say if you're going to see one political documentary this summer, this should be it. When I saw it at Sundance, there was the longest standing ovation of any film I've ever seen at a festival. It's a gripping look at the rise of ISIS in Syria told through the eyes of untrained journalists and local witnesses who risked their own lives and suffered unimaginable personal tragedies to document and share the truth behind ISIS's violent takeover of their city. Anyone who's a filmmaker or journalist will really appreciate what these guys uh, 
went through. Um, you may have heard in recent news that the city of Raqqa, where this movie takes place, was liberated from ISIS this past week. But the effects of the war are far from over. And I think it's almost more important than ever that we understand what's gone on there to help it from repeating or worsening. So another reason to watch this movie is just for the inspiration that you'll feel from witnessing such amazing bravery from everyday people. We will link to my interview with Matthew Heineman about the movie in this week's podcast post. I actually have plans to see that tonight. I mean, it's not exactly a fun night out, but it's so, so worth it. I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing your thoughts. Also coming to theaters on July 14th is Lady Macbeth. This was an interesting one. It was an award season darling from last year, set in 19th century rural England, where a young bride who has been sold into marriage to a middle-aged man discovers an unstoppable desire within herself as she enters into an affair with a worker on her estate. John wrote, it sounds steamy in the description. And Emily it- said, it sounds steamy. If you like historical romances, this one is a good bet. <laughs> <laughs> It is steamy. It's steamy in this podcast booth. I will let everyone know again. It's definitely steamy. Um, I I would recommend seeing it if you if you like if you like movies about people being pushed to their extremes. Um, and their you, sexual extremes. Yes, sexual and uh religious extremes. Wow. <laughs> and if you if you aren't so bothered by um movies that have with characters that have sort of muddy, unclear motivations for very extreme actions. Sounds um, like a Madonna video from the 80s. I like it. <laughs> muddy. <laughs> yeah, muddy, slutty, <laughs> religious, sex, steam. Yeah, that's true. Uh, you should see it. I would recommend it. Um, it's not for everyone, but definitely is for some people the who like slow. That's <laughs> <laughs> one of our stranger movie capsules. I'm sorry. I'm so hot. I can't. I can't stop. <laughs> Oh my god, I'm so hot. Thinking about this movie is making you that yeah, hot? Yeah, it's making me so hot. <laughs> so steamy. Okay, it's directed by William Oldroyd and stars Florence Pugh and Cosmo Jarvis. And Florence Pugh's performance was very um, hailed at out of Toronto. And it's definitely uh, a worthy performance. And now on to some grants and opportunity deadlines for this week. Hot Docs Cross Currents Fund, the theatrical stream, opens their uh, submission period on July 19th. If you're an emerging documentary filmmaker with less than three professional directing credits who has a film that is being told from within an underrepresented community and you need funds to finish it, you should check out this initiative. It provides grants of up to 30000 Canadian dollars to one or more projects in production each year and supports a new range of filmmakers with auteur-driven stories. This grant can reflect up to 50% of the project's production budget. And this is a big one. The deadline for the South by Southwest panel picker is on July 21st. It's the official user-generated session submission platform. So this is the place where if you want to be a speaker or panelist at South by Southwest, you can submit your ideas for panels and presentations online and go through a voting process to potentially get chosen for next year. They want ideas ranging from panels to solo presentations in addition to mentors, roundtables, and workshops. The film tracks include entertainment influencers, making film and episodics, and film and TV industry. They're also looking for convergence track ideas, which feature a wide array of subjects, including experiential storytelling and VR and AR. So I've I've been on panels twice at South by Southwest, and both of them went through this process. So it really works. If your idea is good and people vote for it, you too could be a South by Southwest speaker. A star. Some festival deadlines are also coming up this week. Um, Doc NYC has a deadline of July 14th. This is the final deadline. The festival takes place in New York City from November 9th to 17th this year. 
It's America's largest documentary film festival, and the eight-day festival showcases new achievements in documentary film, along with panels and conversations with acclaimed filmmakers and industry professionals. It's also an Academy Award qualifying festival, so hop on it. And we'll be there. So hop on it. Then we've got the Cork Film Festival on July 15th. This is a quirk. (laughs) Cork, not quirk. This is the final deadline. It takes place November 10th to 19th in Cork County, Ireland. It is one of Ireland's oldest film festivals, and it's been running for 62 years, the age of my father. The festival welcomes all forms of film production, from animation to experimental to student work and documentary. It is also an Academy Award qualifying and BAFTA qualifying film festival. And Hollywood Just Four Shorts film and screenplay competition has a deadline on July 19th. This takes place August 29th, 2017. This short film and script writing contest gives filmmakers increased global exposure through their social media presence, meaning winning shorts will also be considered by Hollywood insiders seeking new talent and feature film adaptation deals. Depending on scheduling and interest, they'll also send your scripts to directors who may be interested in shooting a script in your genre. All right, is it time for my words of wisdom? It's time. Time. Okay, cool, guys. I have a really awesome words of wisdom for this week. Just a few, right? Uh, you know, <laughs> yeah, they were giving me shit for it being very long. But I promise you it's interesting, so it'll be worth it. <laughs> so I visited A24's Manhattan offices last week to pay a visit to David Lowry, the director of A Ghost Story. And if you listened to last week's podcast, you know that I'm basically obsessed, as my friend would say, with this movie. And I think it's the best movie I've seen so far this year. The film's central conceit is a ghost, played by Casey Affleck, wearing a bedsheet with eye holes, who haunts his wife, played by the wonderfully understated Rooney Mara, as she grieves his death. But the film literally transcends words. It's a meditation on how space and time belong to no one, and yet human beings endlessly chase a greater sense of permanence and meaning. And for all the universe's endless cycles, we still can't seem to comprehend the idea of loss. Lowry literally called his friends to make this movie and self-financed it with as little money as he could scrounge up. Here's Lowry on how he almost quit the movie altogether. Well, I wanted it to be a very small crew, a very, you know, close group of friends because I knew this was going to be that type of movie that needed that type of support structure to, to succeed. And so once we had, like, the, you know, once we knew that we were going to make it, we kind of just put the balls in motion. You know, and... Because it was self-financed, there wasn't any, you know, need to go pitch it to anyone or to, you know, knock on doors asking for money. Like, we just knew that we could afford, we were going to make this movie small enough that we could afford to make it ourselves. But it didn't really click into place until I got there full time, which was two days after we finished Peach Dragon. And we also started shooting that day. So it was a very, there, there wasn't a traditional prep period. And it all just sort of kind of came together organically. And... That lack of prep certainly caused problems, but I also wonder now, looking back on it, if we had more prep time, if I would have like lost my nerve and, and pulled the plug on it, because there were plenty of times while shooting that I wanted to do that, but we were already too deeply into it. So what kind of problems did you encounter, and how did you solve them? It was mainly just the ghost. I just was not convinced that it would work. In my mind, it worked beautifully, but on set and in all practical senses it was a it was very much a work in progress for the first week or two of shooting we were constantly just refining the costume and the way in which we had to photograph the costume and the way in which Casey had to act while wearing it it was just a very challenging you know concept to execute in three dimensions 
and the, you know the, the ultimate goal is for it to look as simple as can be to be the simplest you know representation of a ghost imaginable but to make that costume work in three dimensions was a feat of mechanical engineering and I was consistently just sick to my stomach thinking that it would not work or that it would look stupid or that we would just all fall flat on our faces and that was you know definitely the biggest challenge in the entire process just making that ghost work. In the interview, Lowry also discussed why he shot the ghost at 33 frames per second, the challenges of shooting in a 4-3 aspect ratio, and why everyone's talking about that pie scene and more. And you can read it all on nofilmschool.com. So I went to a screening of a ghost story this weekend, and David Lowry came out with a few of his producers for a Q&A after. A Q&A? Yes, a Q&A. Um, and... My weekly words of wisdom are just for you to keep in mind if you go to see this movie. There were some interesting questions, but one in particular struck a chord. An elderly woman stood up and remarked how similar the titular ghost looked to a member of the Ku Klux Klan, asking if that was Lowry's intention with a hint of disgust in her voice. So now, I'd just like to take a moment to put these malicious rumors to rest. David Lowry's ghost in a ghost story was not meant to resemble a member of the KKK. It is merely a phantasmical creature covered by a sheet. KKK members may also wear sheets on their heads, but in this case, Lowry hoped that most people would see the sheet ghost in its traditional sheet ghost sense. Yeah, it looks like a Halloween costume. Yes, it not a It looks more like the Charlie Brown ghost. Exactly. So if I go to a Q&A, I'm going to ask him if he meant for us to think of Charlie Brown. I think you should bring back the KKK thing for him, yeah. Yeah, I bet he loved that. He loved it. That's just ridiculous. That's like the live version of internet comments. Yeah. Well, she she went on with it for quite a while. Wow. And I even thought about asking another question about it just to... Uh, stir the pot? Stir the pot. Be like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Let's get back to this KKK thing. Oh, wow. No, you would have been such an asshole. I'm glad you didn't. <laughs> and I'm glad that you cleared it up here because I haven't seen it yet. Yeah. Well, that'll help. it's a man... Well, I don't know. I also don't think Casey Affleck was in that sheet thing the entire time. He was. I don't know. But he is a member of the KKK. Uh, no, that is that is a misconception. Mm, slander. Sorry, Casey. If you've been paying attention to this podcast, you know that my birthday was this past Monday and I can't get enough of talking about it. And maybe that's because it was also the birthday of one of my favorite DPs, Ellen Curris, who shot Michelle Gondry's Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, several Spike Lee movies, and more than 30 others that you probably like. So I was lucky enough to attend her masterclass at Tribeca earlier this year, and last week I wrote her insights up on the site to share with you. In addition to one of my favorite pieces of advice that we've heard again and again, don't be an asshole, she shared lots of practical tips about visual storytelling, like how you don't have to use prime lenses or rely on the traditional reaction shot setup. She also placed heavy emphasis on understanding your director's vision, saying, quote, Not all directors know about lenses, and not all directors know about blocking. So listen to what they want to say. It's not about creating shots. It's about trying to create the story using the camera and the lighting. Every single shot has a story to it. I really liked her approach, and there's lots more gems like that in the article that we will link to in the podcast post. And as we wrap up, I want to send a big happy birthday to our friend, a wonderful indie film publicist, and perhaps this show's most loyal listener, Brian Gelden. Happy birthday! Happy birthday! Happy birthday! Brian Gelden. And while we're all celebrating Brian, you guys can eagerly anticipate Monday's interview podcast. That's right. 
I just spoke to Flying Lotus yesterday ahead of the NYC premiere of his film Kuso, which I just learned uh, actually is it means shit in Japanese. Um, I saw it back at Sundance, and, and yeah, it's it's definitely one of the grossest films I've ever seen, but Philo made it pretty clear that he's sick of talking about how gross it is. So instead, we talked about his transition from film school, which he did not like, to music, which he does like, back to film, which he says has scarred him. I've been waiting to interview him for like six months now, ever since I saw the movie, and he definitely did not disappoint. So listen to that on Monday. Is it grosser than The Human Centipede? I haven't seen The Human Centipede, but yes, I think so. I th- it's oh uh, it's gross for reasons that aren't gory reasons. They're it, everything gross you could think of, like bodily fluids. He just went in there trying to fill in, I think, as much gross shit as he could. Okay. I'm so glad you finally talked to him. Was he cool? Yeah, he was awesome. He was <laughs> he was like vaping during our podcast <laughs> in the in an office at uh WeWork, uh, which was pretty funny. And I was wearing a King Gizzard shirt and he commented on it and said how much he liked that band and how he tried to get him to the Grammys. Wow, and then were you like, So are we best friends now? I think it was just established at that point, yeah. Oh, congratulations. Men don't need to say it things was, that It was loud. unspoken, yeah. yeah. Yeah, you just like the chest bump and then. Mm-hmm. Cool. Well, I can't wait to hear it. Meanwhile, you all can check out everything we talked about on this podcast and lots more about the craft of filmmaking at nofilmschool.com. Please, please, in a few spare minutes, uh, subscribe to us on iTunes, rate us with those five stars, or check us out wherever you listen to podcasts. And in the meantime, stay in touch. I'm at Liz Film on Twitter. At Yale Booter. At Jim underscore John underscore Jim. 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 John. 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 Jim. 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 At No Film School. See you next week. 